Listeners, over the next four weeks, we're revisiting one of the most notorious relationships in history, 20 years after it ended in tragedy. Enjoy It's Complicated, our four-part retrospective on the trials and tribulations of Susan and Felix Polk. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of war, suicidal ideation, and underage grooming. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Longtime listeners know our favorite question here on Crimes of Passion. For years, we've tried to figure out what drives people to cross the fine line between love and hate. To some, the answer might seem obvious. Love makes you crazy, and that's that. And there's definitely a nugget of truth there. Romantic relationships flood our brains with powerful hormones and neurotransmitters. Sometimes that volatile cocktail of emotions changes people in a drastic way. Add childhood trauma to the mix and you get the tragic, twisted tale of Felix and Susan Polk. From the questionable alternative therapy of the 1970s to the satanic panic and recovered memories, this story has a little bit of everything. Buckle up. Because just when you think you know how it ends, everything gets turned on its head. Only one thing's for sure. When Mr. and Mrs. Wrong get together, disaster is inevitable. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. This is the first episode of our four-part series on Felix and Susan Polk. Over the next four weeks, we'll dive deep into a heinous crime, decades in the making. You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This time, we'll meet Felix and Susan Polk. We'll learn about their lives and the events that brought them together. What started off as an innocent therapy session quickly morphed into a complex web of lies and manipulation. And unfortunately for Susan, the balance of power always tipped in Felix's direction. Next time, we'll see how the relationship progresses from illicit love affair to marriage vows. Things only get wilder from there. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Felix Polk's life started out full of promise in the 1930s. His parents were well-to-do Jewish business owners who operated a men's clothing store in Austria's capital city. Felix and his two siblings grew up living the high life in Vienna, with a staff of servants tending to their every need. It's a good thing there were other adults around because their parents, Eric and Johanna, were distracted. Both worked at the family store six days a week, and when his mother did stay home, according to Felix, she wasn't exactly the nurturing type. That might be why the young boy became so attached to his nursemaid, Katya. It was Katya, not his mother or father, who taught Felix about unconditional love. She provided him with the feeling of belonging he so desperately craved. For their part, his parents constantly compared Felix to his twin brother, John. Felix was pretty small for his age and very sensitive. He retreated to his imagination, which may have made him seem distant and closed off. From the beginning, it seemed like John was stronger, smarter, and more social. And their parents never let Felix forget it. It felt like he would never be good enough for them. But in 1938, their family dysfunction was overshadowed by the apocalyptic events unfolding around them. Felix was just six years old when Germany invaded Vienna. Life, as the Polks knew it, came to an abrupt end. Even though they didn't go to temple or observe many Jewish traditions, their heritage was enough to make them a target. One night, Felix woke up to loud banging on their front door. His panicked mother told the children to hide. Felix had just managed to tuck himself away when a squad of Nazi officers barged in. The boy covered his ears, but he couldn't drown out the harsh voices and sounds of a scuffle. When the house went quiet, little Felix emerged from his hiding place to find his mother sobbing in the entryway. They'd taken his father without so much as a where or a why. Felix counted the seconds until they could meet again. Luckily, Eric Polk avoided the worst. We don't know exactly how long he was held captive, but the Germans released him once he turned over his business and promised to leave Austria with his family. Unfortunately, that was easier said than done. The list of countries open to refugees was short. As Eric and Johanna searched for a nation willing to take them, Felix's life became a dangerous game of hide-and-seek. Nazis raided their neighborhood on a regular basis, arresting Jewish residents. Whenever they showed up, the Polks holed up at a nearby park from dawn until dusk. It took months, but they were finally able to secure French visas. Felix's beloved Katya accompanied the family to the train station, he barely had a chance to hug her goodbye before Eric and Johanna hurried him along. He may not have understood what was happening, but he knew his parents were terrified. He watched their eyes dart side to side, noting the Nazi soldiers on the platform. 
His father's voice was clipped and high as he ordered Felix and his siblings to move quickly. By the time they were seated, Felix was stiff with anxiety. He managed to steal one last glance at Katya through the dingy window as they pulled out of the station. He wasn't sure if he'd ever see her again. Even so, he didn't cry. He couldn't. He was so nervous he could barely breathe. When they made it to Paris, Eric and Johanna sent Felix and his siblings to a boarding school. Hundreds of miles away from the only home he'd ever known, he couldn't hold it in any longer. The tears finally came and they didn't stop. Felix started having nightmares and cried for Katya all the time. His big sister, Evelyn, did her best to comfort him, but he was inconsolable. It certainly didn't help that the French boarding school felt like a different planet. At seven or eight years old, Felix didn't understand the culture or the language. After a few months, he was back with his parents, but the reunion wasn't a happy one. By 1940, even Paris wasn't safe from the Nazis. Eric and Johanna collected their children and ran once again. Unsure of where else to go, they took refuge in the French city of Saint-Malo, Brave townspeople smuggled the family into barns and attics. They ate whatever their rescuers could afford to spare. It was a far cry from their cushy lives in Vienna, and Felix was embarrassed about how far they'd fallen. The fear and instability continued until 1941, when the Polks were able to get visas to the United States. They crossed the Atlantic on a cargo ship, landing in New York Harbor in November. Eventually, they settled in Harrison, New York. His parents wanted to put the past behind them. That meant pretending the war never happened. That wasn't so easy for nine-year-old Felix, who was haunted by the life he'd lost. Before we get into some psychology, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. According to a 2010 report from the American Psychological Association, Refugee children are especially prone to developing emotional disorders like PTSD, depression, and anxiety. While Felix struggled to adjust to his new life, his siblings appeared to cope with their wartime experiences with less issues. There are a number of things that might explain the difference, but a big one is the family dynamic. Before they went on the run, Felix felt like the black sheep, it was Katya, not his parents, who made him feel safe. Without her, he was totally unmoored. Before long, things went back to the way they were before the war. Eric and Johanna favored John over Felix. Although both boys did well in school, John did just a bit better. And their parents never hesitated to point it out. This time, Felix turned to fiction to deal with his anguish. Characters were easier to understand and relate to than people. After everything he'd been through, he preferred make-believe to reality. He probably didn't make many friends that way, but it worked out all right. After high school, he earned a scholarship to St. John's College, the Great Book School. Eric and Johanna were proud, though not as proud as they were of John, who was accepted to MIT. In an ideal world, Going to a different college should have given Felix the opportunity to step out of John's shadow. Unfortunately, Felix continued to live entirely in his own mind, which was a dark and confusing place to be. 
His letters home didn't mention friends or classes. They read more like philosophical journal entries. By the time he graduated, Felix's mental health was in a steep decline. Even with a degree, he felt lost. In the end, he decided to join the Navy. Maybe he was hoping to find a sense of belonging, or maybe he only joined because John enlisted in the Army. Whatever his reasons, the move didn't improve his mental state. Soon, Felix found himself in the throes of debilitating anxiety. He'd become self-conscious to the point that it caused him physical pain to connect with other people, including friends and family. The chasm between him and the rest of society grew every day, and he sank into a deep depression. In October of 1955, the 23-year-old attempted to die by suicide. He was taken to a naval psychiatric hospital, where doctors diagnosed him with a, quote, psychotic depressive reaction with suicidal tendencies. They also made note of a schizophrenic thought process though he reportedly showed no signs of delusions or hallucinations. During his time there, Felix also underwent extensive talk therapy with a psychotherapist. The sessions provided him with something he never knew he needed, permission to share his thoughts and feelings. The more he opened up, the more he started to understand himself. After a year of treatment, he was deemed well enough to be released, just not to active duty. Instead, the clinical board of the hospital put him on the temporary disability retired list. With nowhere else to go, Felix moved back in with his parents in Harrison. He quickly realized his ordeal was taboo in the family. Just as they had done after the war, his parents refused to acknowledge what happened to him. It was like they'd moved on with their lives while Felix was away. Since then, John had gotten married. His new wife set Felix up on a blind date with one of her Juilliard classmates, Sharon Mann. She turned out to be the yin to Felix's yang. At just 18, she was already an accomplished pianist, full of drive and passion. She quickly brought the quiet young man out of his shell with her warm sense of humor. They started dating and with Sharon's help, Felix discovered his own passions. It inspired him to think about his strengths. For one, he'd always been a good listener. He preferred sitting on the sidelines to being in the action. That, coupled with his sensitive nature, led him to social work. He enrolled at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine at Yeshiva University in Manhattan to pursue a master's degree. A few years later in 1959, he graduated and married Shannon. The year after that, he was honorably discharged. After seeing himself as a failure for so long, it felt incredible to make real progress. It seemed like the pieces were finally falling into place. But as Felix's confidence grew, so did his desire for control. Coming up, Felix Polk makes a name for himself in the Bay Area. The floorboards creak, the walls, They moan. The house seems vacant, but you're not alone. This October, Parcast invites you to celebrate the spookiness of the Halloween season with all new episodes of Haunted Places. From an infamous murder farm in Indiana to the ghostly tombs and palaces of ancient Egypt, 
visit the world's most haunted destinations and find out what happens when a soul leaves the body but doesn't leave the grounds. Enjoy new episodes of Haunted Places all month long, free, and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By 1960, 28-year-old Felix Polk had everything he'd ever dreamed of. A meaningful degree a lovely wife, and a job he was passionate about. Well, sort of. He enjoyed being a social worker, but it wasn't exactly all he imagined it would be. He felt called to make a bigger impact, to have more influence on his clients. As he thought back on his time in the Navy hospital, inspiration struck. His therapist had drastically changed the course of his own life, for the better. Felix wanted to do the same for others who were struggling, so he pursued a PhD in psychology. He didn't want a degree from just anywhere, though. Felix told Sharon they were moving across the country so he could continue his education at the prestigious UC Berkeley. Ever the supportive wife, she agreed, and the newlyweds left for the Golden State. After landing in California, Felix's life continued its upward trajectory, while he worked towards his PhD, Sharon flourished as a concert pianist in the artsy Bay Area. Over the next six years, they also welcomed two children, Andrew and Jennifer. Friends from the time say they look like the picture-perfect family. They were often seen laughing and smiling on outings together, but the rosy exterior didn't match Felix's mood. Despite all his progress, he still felt insecure. By the time he completed his Ph.D. program in 1965 at 33 years old, he was raring to kickstart his career. And just a couple of years later, he was named chief psychologist of Alameda County, basically running the psych department of every hospital and clinic in the area. It was a position that came with a lot of prestige and power. Most importantly, it meant he could finally become a substantial provider for his family, but even as Felix made strides forward, he knew something was missing. He was starting to feel it again, that itch that brought him out to California in the first place. He wanted to focus on his own work, not on micromanaging other practitioners. It was time to take another leap. So Felix opened a private practice. He specialized in helping troubled teens, though he saw older clients too. He kept his chief psychologist position as a cautionary measure, but by 1969, his practice was so successful that he resigned from the post. Part of the reason for his success probably had to do with his therapeutic approach. Since Freud, therapists have been taught to aim for neutrality and share very little of themselves with their patients. But after the sexual revolution of the 1960s, the idea of maintaining stringent boundaries had become somewhat old-fashioned. New age was king. 
With places such as the Esalen Institute nearby, meditation and yoga infiltrated the traditional therapy space. Spiritual ideals like interconnectedness seemed to give permission for some to play fast and loose with their clients. It's safe to assume Felix was influenced by it all, and judging from his popularity, there was certainly an appetite for his approach. He was known for speaking about himself in sessions. More than that, he involved his patients in his personal life. He freely handed out his home phone number, and it wasn't unusual for clients to come over to his house for holidays or social calls. One even regularly babysat his kids. But making friends with his patients may have been less about helping them and more about helping himself. Being the expert gave him the kind of strength and power he'd longed for since childhood. For once, he had people seeking his approval. Whatever his motivations, his clients adored him. He was a central figure in many of their lives and over time, they grew emotionally dependent on him. Felix relished the control that gave him. From his point of view, he figured he was doing something right. He had a steady stream of new patients within a year and his practice only expanded from there. As the 70s rolled around, self-improvement programs became the new trend. Even professional psychologists were intrigued by what was on offer. Felix was particularly interested in one called Earhart Seminar Training, or EST. Founded on ideas akin to problems only exist in the mind and reality is what you make it, EST promised access to a higher consciousness. Ultimately, it claimed to offer total control over one's life. But to get there, you had to survive the training. EST taught that normal consciousness led people to beliefs that made them unhappy. Their workshops were designed to break down the ego. To do that, patients were subjected to hours of intense verbal abuse and humiliation. Those who refused to put up with it were told they didn't get it, and anyone who broke down was deemed too weak for the next level. The ones who made it through were celebrated like warriors, knights who'd successfully slayed their dragon. Already a fan of the unconventional, Felix dove right in. He recommended the seminars to friends and patients alike. When singing its praises to a buddy from grad school, he said Est had taught him more in one weekend than any of his old professors. Soon, he was incorporating Est exercises like visualization and meditation into his own sessions. His clients seemed to appreciate the fresh approach, and by 1972, he was known in the Bay Area as the go-to adolescent specialist. He pretty much always had a steady influx of new clients, but something about his latest one really stood out. Felix was captivated by 15-year-old Susan Bowling. She was graceful and well-dressed, yet when her brown eyes met his for the first time, Felix also sensed a familiar loneliness. Even before they spoke, he felt that he had to help her, that he was the only one who could. Susan was a Bay Area native born in 1957 in Concord, California. Her mother Helen could tell right away that she had a special child on her hands. Susan was precocious. She started walking at just eight months old. 
There were always books around the house, and seemingly through sheer force of will, she learned to read before starting kindergarten. As she got older, Helen shared her love of Russian literature with her daughter. It quickly became Susan's favorite, too. Growing up, the bowling children spent most days with Helen. Between his job and law school, their dad, Dick, wasn't around much. Helen promised the kids he'd make up for all the lost time once he graduated. That's not what happened, though. Instead, when Susan was five, her parents' marriage fell apart. Dick left Helen for another woman before the ink was dry on his diploma. It seems he really lived up to his name. After failing to win sole custody of the kids, he slowly faded away from their lives. That didn't seem to bother Susan much. She'd always been closer to her mom anyway. But it's possible she just didn't share her full feelings on the matter. As time wore on, she became more and more introverted. Helen noticed that Susan didn't appear interested in kids her age. It seemed like a part of her knew she was smarter, which made her feel like she was better than them, or at least more mature. She felt more at home in her novels than in the real world. In her teenage years, the situation was even worse. Some might assume that high-achieving kids like Susan are the happiest and healthiest, but they're actually among the most vulnerable to emotional distress. According to an article published in 2008, that may be because they tend to develop unevenly. While their cognitive abilities might be off the charts, they're still operating on the same social and emotional levels as their age group. For someone as intelligent as Susan, it can be extremely frustrating to be forced to act like a normal teen when you feel like anything but. On top of that, they're likely to feel disconnected from their peers. Plagued by the idea that they don't fit in, they can develop low self-esteem or depression. With all of this swirling in the background and puberty on the horizon, Susan was in for an intense phase of life. She was becoming a beautiful young woman, and boys had started to notice. All the comments made Susan extremely uncomfortable. She took to turning and running home if she heard catcalls on her way to class. Things got worse when she started high school. It seemed like she was the only girl not interested in finding a boyfriend. For the most part, she was supremely bored by the attention. Not even her teachers could offer a distraction. She had a hard time understanding why she should listen to their lessons. During the fall of her freshman year, Susan and her classmates took a standardized IQ test. When the results came back, she had the highest score in the entire school. The principal called her to his office to personally congratulate her. Suddenly, people were calling her things like genius and gifted. Susan wasn't surprised by the news, but she was happy to finally have confirmation. She didn't just feel better than everyone around her. She actually was. With that knowledge, high school felt even more pointless than before. There was no need to subject herself to the constant discomfort and anxiety it brought on if she was already a genius. So she went less and less until eventually she stopped showing up altogether. The school sent letters home, which Susan quickly pocketed. 
She couldn't keep her mom from attending parent-teacher conferences, though, and pretty soon, the jig was up. Confronted with her truancy, Susan did her best to explain the tangled web of her thoughts and feelings. The principal realized attention wasn't going to solve the problem. Clearly, Susan had some deeper issues she needed to address. He suggested she see a psychotherapist. And no one came more highly recommended than Dr. Felix Polk. His office was 30 minutes away in Berkeley, a much cooler city than Concord as far as Susan was concerned. The doctor himself was equally impressive. Helen took a shine to Felix right away. The 40-year-old gave off a warm, fatherly energy that she felt Susan had been missing for many years. But Helen also knew that her daughter couldn't be forced into anything. Thankfully, Susan seemed to like Felix too. Still, she was nervous during their initial one-on-one session. To break the ice, Felix asked what she did for fun. He seemed surprised and maybe impressed when she told him she loved Russian literature. He said he also loved to read and soon they were chatting away like old friends. The connection made Susan feel seen and understood and their similarities didn't end with books. As their sessions continued, Felix marveled at how much they had in common. He could see how smart she really was and didn't pressure her about getting back on track with school. Before long, Susan came to trust him. During one of their meetings, Felix invited her to sit on his lap. We don't know the context for sure, but perhaps they were discussing her father's absence in her life. Even at such a young age, Susan probably knew it was a weird suggestion. Still, she did it and was surprised by how comforting it felt. Despite the rapport she and Felix were building, Susan's behavior didn't get better. In fact, it got worse. She continued to skip school and added shoplifting to her list of bad habits. Her probation officer recommended more counseling, but the judge disagreed. He thought a month in a juvenile detention facility would do her some good. Little did he know, Susan had her own plans, and no one would stop her. Coming up, Susan spirals and Felix rushes to the rescue. Now, back to the story. By 1973, 16-year-old Susan Bowling had been in therapy with 41-year-old Felix Polk for a little over a year. It didn't really seem to be helping. After she was caught shoplifting, Susan was sent to juvie. Just a few days in the facility were enough to convince her she was in way over her head. High school was nothing compared to this place. Sure, class might have felt like a prison at the time, but this was the real deal. The kids around her had done way worse than nicking a dress. Her anxiety skyrocketed. She decided there was no way she'd make it an entire month there. So she took matters into her own hands. Running away turned out to be a lot easier than she thought. All Susan did was catch a ride with someone leaving the detention center. From there, she hitchhiked to Oakland to hide out with a friend. She was technically a fugitive, but she was also happier than she'd been in a while. Her friend was engaged to a guy in the Navy, and the three of them quickly formed a little family. 
They welcomed Susan along on dates and shared meals together. It was lovely, but it also made her realize how lonely she was. She hadn't called or written her mom since disappearing from the facility. About a month in, though, she couldn't wait any longer. She expected Helen to scream and yell, but all her mom did was listen. Helen was relieved to hear from her daughter, but she had no clue what to do next. She wanted Susan home. She just worried the girl would end up right back in juvie. She needed help figuring this mess out, so she called Dr. Polk. Felix assured her everything would be all right. All she needed to do was make sure they got Susan back. He'd handle the courts. He wrote a letter requesting that Susan be left in his care rather than sent back to the facility. The court agreed with the stipulation that she go to continuation school to catch up on ninth grade. For Susan, going from her month of freedom to a highly structured schedule was tough, especially because the continuation school combined the worst parts of regular school and the detention center. Boring classes and degenerate kids, it was all so below her. Therapy was the one thing she looked forward to. Before long, Felix became her closest, if not her only friend. But the problems that first brought her to him were still glaring. She wasn't any closer to returning to public high school and had trouble relating to kids her own age. Instead of addressing her anxiety, Felix focused on building their connection. He saw so much of himself in her, the way she escaped reality through reading, the desperate loneliness she felt being on the outskirts of society. He wanted nothing more than to save her the way his therapist in the Navy had saved him. He shared things with Susan that he didn't tell other patients, like how he tried to die by suicide when he was younger. Susan gathered these details like little treasures, but while it felt nice to know she was special to him, it wasn't enough to help her heal. One night in 1974, Helen came home from work, exhausted from a long shift. Susan's music was playing so loud she could hear it from the front door. Helen tried to shout over the thrumming guitar, but knew it was useless. She dragged herself to Susan's room, fuming all the way. Passing the bathroom in the hall, she noticed strange red smears on the mirror. It looked like someone had tried scribbling something in lipstick across the glass. Now, she was really annoyed. When she burst through Susan's door, however, her rage turned to terror. Susan lay sprawled across the bed at an odd angle, unconscious, an open bottle of Helen's prescription next to her. Helen leapt into action, carrying Susan to the car and speeding to the hospital. There, the emergency doctors pumped her stomach. Helen was distraught. She felt completely ill-equipped to deal with the situation. So once again, she turned to the only person she could think of. While Susan was in the psych ward, Felix wrote another letter to the court. He blamed Susan's attempt on them, stating that sending her to juvie and the continuation school had severely damaged her mind. This time, Susan was released without any conditions. She wouldn't serve any more time for shoplifting and didn't have to go back to school at all. According to official records, Helen and Felix were given custody. 
After that, Susan lived her life in only two places, home and her therapist's office. Felix had unconventional relationships with all of his patients, but things between him and 17-year-old Susan were on a whole new level. Now that she was older, their physical contact steadily ramped up. They sat together on the couch, sometimes so close their legs pressed together. Every meeting ended with a long, close embrace. Susan had never felt such intimacy with her father, so she reveled in the warmth of Felix's arms. Things got a little less innocent when Felix decided to help her become more comfortable with her changing body. Catcalls had been one of the triggers of her anxiety, so he instructed her to walk around his office while he watched. Every once in a while, he'd make a comment about her body or ask questions. Things like, did she notice how men watched her butt as she moved? Maybe it was supposed to be something like exposure therapy, but it seemed like a thinly veiled opportunity for Felix to ogle her. Some level of client-therapist admiration is considered healthy. According to licensed clinical social worker and psychotherapist Sean Grover, a good counselor provides what he calls loving acceptance. Basically, it's validation intended to help patients learn what it feels like to be valued and cared for. However, the important next step is to guide them as they find the same types of relationships outside of the office. Felix doesn't seem to have done this for any of his patients, but especially not Susan. Instead, he encouraged her to rely solely on him. Rather than learning more about herself and forming a sense of identity, she was entirely devoted to him. Being Felix's favorite patient became central to who she was, exactly as he intended. He was so successful in his work with Susan that he brought her to meet his graduate students. In addition to his private practice, he'd been teaching psychology at a university in nearby Marin County. It was pretty common for professors to bring in actual patients for their classes to observe, kind of like show and tell. But Felix's students had seen him with enough clients by then to know that something was different about this one. Susan was a pretty young thing, somewhere in her late teens and Dr. Polk seemed to treat her more like a pet than a client. It wasn't just that she called him Felix. Others did that too. They just seemed more intimate than they should be. At one point, Felix invited his fellow professors to sit in and watch. In front of all of them, he claimed that he'd cured Susan of schizophrenia, though it's not clear when she was diagnosed with it. His colleagues were shocked by the declaration, and very skeptical. It was a bizarre thing for a psychologist to say. It was and is widely accepted that most mental health issues can't be cured. They can, however, be treated and many people find relief from their symptoms. As Dr. Polk and Susan demonstrated their usual session, it became apparent that nothing was being managed in an appropriate way. Even the students could tell her thought process wasn't quite right. However, Dr. Polk seemed oblivious. Clearly, he'd lost all objectivity with this girl. Previously, he taught his class the importance of boundaries in a therapeutic relationship. Yet he and Susan obviously had none. 
They were always making some sort of physical contact, sitting and standing uncomfortably close together. One student noticed they were dressed almost identically, down to the matching shoes. As the demonstration wore on, the audience grew increasingly uneasy. It felt like they were spying on a date, not observing a therapy session. Still, no one said or did anything about it. From there, Felix continued to treat Susan completely unchecked. Before long, the lingering hugs turned into passionate kisses. There isn't a record, so we can't know for certain when things between them turned sexual. However, Felix's story, which never wavered, was that they waited until she was around 18 or 19 years old. Susan told her mom about their sexual relationship shortly after it began. Helen was furious with Felix, who she felt was taking advantage of her daughter. For some reason, though, she never reported him. Instead, she tried to convince Susan to go for someone more age-appropriate, but her attempts were in vain. Even if Helen had succeeded, Felix never would have let Susan go. Despite the beautiful facade he and his wife Sharon kept up over the years, he hadn't been happy in his marriage for a while. Once upon a time, he loved her independent streak, counted on it even. But as he became more successful, it grated on him. She hardly needed him for anything, making all the decisions about the family herself. It reminded him too much of his own mother, who he'd never been fond of. Whenever he was home, he just felt stupid and useless. Meanwhile, Susan depended on him for everything. Although Felix assured her and himself they weren't doing anything wrong, he still felt they should keep the affair a secret. He was married and besides, others wouldn't understand the nature of their relationship, considering the way it began. In the 1970s, the ethics of their liaison were still up for debate. Their connection was certainly taboo, but Felix hadn't broken any existing ethical standards or laws. It wouldn't be until the 90s that psychological associations officially forbade therapist-patient sexual relationships. Some states even made it illegal. But at that point, until she said otherwise, Susan was 18 and a consenting adult in the eyes of the law. Technically, they weren't doing anything illegal. In any case, there's no denying the affair was weird. And Felix's colleagues were finally starting to catch on. At least one other psychologist who worked in his office building could tell something was up with Susan. One time, the doctor saw Susan in Felix's waiting room, giggling at his office door. When she looked closer, she could see it was open just a crack and Felix was whispering to Susan, almost flirtatiously. Best case scenario, it was an unprofessional interaction, but she sensed there was more to it, and it was just a matter of time until others saw it too. When push came to shove, Felix would have to decide between the two things he'd worked so hard to cultivate, his career and Susan. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next week with part two on Susan and Felix Polk. In the 1980s, 
Susan fixates on the wave of satanic panic sweeping the nation, and Felix finds another way to use her. For more information on Susan and Felix Polk, we found Seduced by Madness, the true story of the Susan Polk murder case by Carol Pogash, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronach, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, edited by Natalie Pertsovsky and Tara Wells, fact-checked by Haley Milligan, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Thank you.